Venus and for, for Mandy and for Claire, for Eve and Fiona, I think, who are leading the groups today. Um, Lord, just bless them and their time together now. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, the young people, I think just want to... Speak and Lord, give us hearts and minds that are uh, that are ready 
to, to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Debbie. Great to be with you this afternoon, friends. Welcome. Especially, again, if this is your first time with us, lovely to have you uh, with us this afternoon. Uh, have you ever been to a wedding? I guess most, if not all of us, have. Uh, and weddings are great occasions, full of meaning and celebration and joy. It's wonderful to witness two people committing themselves to one another in exclusive love and loyalty for the rest of their lives. We love looking on as bride and groom make their vows to one another. It is a real privilege to be a witness to such an occasion. Well, friends, this afternoon, we are invited to a wedding. Not between two people, but between God and his people, the people of Israel. And it is a real privilege to witness this occasion. This wedding has been long planned, putting even the most obsessive wedding planner to shame. This is the culmination of an extended courtship. We've seen this taking place so far in the book of Exodus. Remember where we've been, God has acted in love to his people. He's come to them, claimed them as his own, brought them out from slavery in Egypt through displaying his mighty power in the ten plagues. He sustained Israel in marvellous, miraculous ways, parting the Red Sea so they could cross while destroying Pharaoh providing manna in the desert to sustain them, meeting with them at Mount Sinai, which is the setting of these words today. And God has spoken words of love over his people. Israel has been called God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, in chapter 19. And God has just spent the last four chapters, chapters 20 to 23, setting out what a loving response to his grace looks like in terms of obedience. See, God has been wooing his people, and now the wedding day arrives. But it is a very different wedding from the ones that we're used to. There is no white dress, uh, no first dance, no bossy photographer demanding that you smile all the time. That's good news. And yet this truly is a wedding day, because at the heart of marriage is this big, big biblical idea of covenant, of loving commitment, of making and keeping promises to one another. Think of how a bride and groom vow to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy law. That is the heart of marriage. Partners make promises to one another. They covenant together. And I wonder if you've ever wondered where that idea comes from. Well, actually, it comes from God. You see, human marriages are secondary. They're derivatives. They're a copy of something deeper and richer. God's divine marriage with his people is primary. That is the ultimate marriage in all reality. That is the heavenly reality to which our earthly marriages are to point. 
And this idea of covenant is all over this chapter, as I trust we'll see. Here, God's covenant with Israel is confirmed. Their wedding day arrives. And the relationship that's already existed between God and his people is now formalised for all to see and celebrate. Here, God binds himself in love to his people. And here, God's people pledge themselves to love and loyalty in return. To forsake all others and remain true to their bridegroom. And I trust, friends, this will be deeply meaningful for us today as well. You see, God always relates to his people in covenant. He's always committing. He's always making promises. That's the kind of God he is. And if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, Christians here today, we are bound to God in a new covenant. Sealed in Jesus' shed blood. So the shape of this old covenant marriage that we read about here in Exodus 24 can give colour to how we think about our relationship with God today. And if we're exploring Christianity, looking into faith for the first time, we could do a lot worse than think about this idea of covenant. That takes us in many ways to the heart of biblical Christianity. And actually, if today we find that idea of covenant appealing, Well, we too are invited to benefit from that and to receive that blessing by coming into the covenant ourselves. And ultimately, although we're looking back in time to Israel's wedding in Exodus 24, as believers we are still looking forward to our wedding day, which is yet to come, but come it will, when Jesus returns and he claims us as his own forever. When faith turns to sight, And so all we're thinking about today, our trust will deepen our longing for that day and for him. So it is a real privilege to witness God's wedding today in Exodus 24. So let's dive in. The chapter seems to be structured around two specific times when God calls Moses up Mount Sinai to meet him. I wonder if you noticed that as the verses were read out. That command is there in verse 1, come up to the Lord. And it's repeated again in verse 10, come, uh, sorry, verse 12, come up to me. So we'll split the teaching of the chapter around those two conversations that God has on Mount Sinai. And the first conversation is all about covenant confirmed. All about covenant confirmed. That's what we see in the first uh, 11 verses. Over the past weeks, we've seen and heard Moses up on Mount Sinai meeting God, haven't we? So Moses now comes down from meeting God on Mount Sinai and he sets about getting the covenant confirmed. There's immediate action, no time is wasted. And as we look at this section, we see three particular elements that are highlighted about the covenant that God is making with his people. Firstly, see how Israel is set apart by sacrificial blood to belong to God. See, at the heart of this ritual, as the covenant is confirmed, is sacrifice. Look at verse 4. Moses builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. He sets up 12 stones to represent Israel in all that is happening. And verse 5, we read of some Israelite men who were delegated to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. So at the heart of covenant is sacrifice. These sacrifices speak of the need 
to make atonement for human sin, to cover guilt. And they express devotion to God. But note, what's particularly important is what happens to the blood of these sacrifices. Look at verse uh, 7. After Israel pledges their obedience, we read, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do you spot the logic? This blood, this, this sacrifice is to pay for sin. It covers offence. It deals with guilt. And now that sacrificial blood is sprinkled on God's people as a sign of their newfound dedication and standing before God as his people. You see, traditionally on a wedding day, brides often wear white, don't they, as a sign of their purity. Well, here on this wedding day, Israel wears red as a sign that they are not pure. What they wear reminds them that they are guilty. Their only hope is in the sacrifice that God provides to cover their guilt. But he has done it. So they can now be devoted to God. Israel is set apart to belong to God through sacrificial blood. We see that very clearly here. The second aspect of the covenant to note, though, is to see how Israel binds herself to obey God's written words. Again, remember where we are. God spent the last few chapters outlining his laws and commandments to Moses. And Moses comes down the mountain with those words ringing in his ears. Let's pick up verse 3. So when Moses told the people all the Lord's words and laws, what did they do? They responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Did you see that? God speaks words to Moses, giving him words and laws. Moses passes them on verbally to the people and then writes them down in a book, which they are to read to shape their life as God's people. This note of obedience to God's written words is even clearer. Look at verse 7. Moses, we read, took the book of the covenant, this written testimony of what God has said, and read it to the people. They respond, verse 7, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Here is the bride making her vow on her wedding day to obey, to, to have and to hold to God's and to God's written words. Now, Israel is way too self-confident here in their ability to obey God. We see that as the story of the Old Testament unfolds. But nonetheless, at this point, these words are genuine. They read with deep sincerity, and my heart echoes them. And I wonder if yours does as well, even though I can't do that. I want to do it. Israel binds herself to obey God's words written. The third aspect of the covenant that's particularly highlighted is for us to see how Israel is privileged to eat with God then in covenant fellowship. After all, that's the best bit of a wedding, isn't it? The wedding breakfast. It can't just be me that thinks that, I hope. You you have the wedding and then you have a feast to celebrate the wedding. And it's the same pattern here. 
After the sacrifices, after the sprinkling, after the pledges of obedience, the covenant is confirmed. And verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hands against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw gods, and they ate and drank. He feasted with gods in celebration of the relationship they had with him. And there's mystery here in these verses. Of course there is. But what is clear is how privileged these representatives of Israel are to eat and drink in God's presence. It's a privilege because God is great. The best description we get about him is restricted to the foot level. Did you notice that? It's almost like Moses can't lift his eyes to look beyond the feet. So great and glorious is the God in whose presence he's eating. And how unusual this situation is, is underlined by the fact that being exposed to God's greatness here doesn't lead to destruction, but feasting. In God's grace, Israel is privileged to eat with him in covenant fellowship. Friends, this is a momentous day. As beautiful and as profound as any human marriage. Israel would look back on this day time and again throughout her long history. This is the crucial turning point in Israel's collective identity as God's people. And friends, it's crucial for our identity as God's people too. Because as Christians, we are bound to God by covenant. Just not this covenant of Exodus 24. Bear with me. You see, wonderful as this moment is, it is not the final destination for the people of God. This marriage, this covenant illustrates But it is not the full reality. It is pointing bigger and better beyond itself. This is the old covenant that Israel was bound to God with as a nation. But friends, as believers in the Lord Jesus today, we are bound to God by a new covenant. Actually, as the book of Hebrews says, a better covenant. This is amazing, but what we have is even more amazing. The Apostle Peter seems to echo these words from Exodus 24 in his first letter where he writes these words describing Christians. He says, believers are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here's the crucial bit. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. That sounds familiar from what we've seen. And sprinkled with his blood. Well, that sounds familiar from what we've seen, doesn't it? See, like Israel, if we're Christians, we are too are sprinkled with blood. Not the blood of an animal sacrifice, but as Peter says elsewhere in his letter, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We are sprinkled with the blood of God's own Son, with the one who left the glory of heaven to enter our world of brokenness. And gave his life up for us to pay for our sins, to cover our guilt, and to secure eternal forgiveness for all who trust in him. We're sprinkled with that blood. We are cleansed. Our sin is covered, dealt with, done away with. 
And we are now bound to, to God. He claims us and we are set apart for him as his dearly loved people. Jesus is the sacrifice at the heart of the new covenant that pays for our sins and that secures our standing before God forever. He has done enough. He has given enough. He has paid enough. And Jesus' blood binds us to God. and means now you and I, although we are still sinful, can be welcomed into God's family, safe and secure. We are set apart for God by sacrificial blood. And if you are trusting Jesus, you are sprinkled with that blood today. I was tempted to bring red dye and throw it out as a sign, but I thought you might get a bit uh, in rebellion if I started staining your clothes. Um, But you are sprinkled with blood. You are dressed in red. You belong to God. You've been set apart by him. That is your secure standing. That is your lasting identity. That is who you are. Don't forget it. Cling to that. Rejoice in that. Stand on that. And if you haven't yet responded to Jesus in that way and aren't part of that covenant, what is stopping you today enjoying that status? It can be yours if you turn to Jesus and trust him today. But note, Peter also talks about obedience here, doesn't he? Did you start at verse 2? To be obedient to Jesus Christ. You see, like Israel, if we're Christians, we too are called to obey God, to obey Jesus. So how do we know we're being obedient to Jesus? It's a good question. Well, by being obedient to Jesus' words written down for us in the Bible. Just like Israel of old, they were bound to God's written words, so we too are bound to God's written words in the Bible. Now, obedience has got a bit of a bad rep today. I think obedience is often dismissed as something old-fashioned, something that we shouldn't really talk about But obedience is often presented in our world as if it's in conflict with being in loving relationship. It's like love and obedience are enemies. But surely that can't be right. See, the obedience we're called to under the new covenant isn't cold. It's not mechanical. It's not to earn our standing with God. Now, this obedience we're called to is consistent with loving Jesus and knowing him deeply and personally and richly. That is the appropriate response when our hearts are touched by the grace of Jesus, to obey him. That's what we're set apart, Peter says, for. Friends, love and obedience hold hands. They are friends and not enemies. They belong together. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, where is Jesus calling us to renew our commitment to covenant obedience to him today. Maybe in your speech, where he's calling you to get rid of gossip and judgmental words. Or maybe in your actions, where he's calling you to get rid of holding on to your money and is urging you to be generous with it to others. Maybe in your mind, where he's calling you to trust him rather than give way to anxious and fearful thoughts. We could multiply the examples. We'd be here all afternoon, I'm sure. But pray for the Spirit's conviction to help you right now, today, 
sense where Jesus is calling you to covenant obedience afresh. He is. And that is a beautiful path to walk. One you will never regret stepping on. This is how we show our loving loyalty to our heavenly bridegroom. This is our vow to our bridegroom, to have and to hold him. But, as we were saying earlier, this new covenant that we're bound in is better than the old covenant. Why is it better? Well, because of one significant difference, one way in which our situation is profoundly unlike this situation in Exodus 24. Because in Exodus 24, did you note, it's only certain representatives of Israel who get to eat with God. Did you notice that? Now, don't get me wrong, that's amazing, right? And in the leaders, all the people are represented. But it's clear, some are kept at a distance. Verse 1 tells us that. The people may not come up. They're kept at a distance because of how the covenant is working at this point in God's history. Not so for us under the new covenant. Now, any and all who trust in Jesus are welcomed to come and eat and drink with God. None need be kept out. None need be excluded. All of us, if we're trusting in Jesus, are welcome to eat and drink in the presence of God as we celebrate As we enjoy our covenant meal as believers, what we call the Lord's Supper, where we eat and drink in remembrance of the body and blood, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. All can come and eat with God at that meal if they're trusting in Jesus, can meet and eat and celebrate all he is and all he's done. We too are privileged to eat with God in covenant fellowship as believers. So next time we have Lord's Supper in this church, let's make an extra effort to have our hearts ready to feel the weight and the beauty of what we are doing. We are welcome to eat and drink with Jesus. Now, in deep and profound ways as we share at the the supper, and in hope of a greater feast to come when Jesus returns and puts all things right. These realities are set out for us and pressed to us as we think about this first conversation, covenant commitment, uh, covenant confirmation, covenant confirmation. Secondly, and much more quickly, the second conversation is all about covenant climax. I couldn't think of a better word than that. Hope that will be all right. Verses 12 through to 18. Because although everything so far is so profound and momentous, as I hope we've been sensing, this isn't the end of the chapter. There is more to come. The chapter ends with a second, slightly odd conversation between Moses and God on top of Mount Sinai. Uh, We're just going to lead into the conversation. We don't hear the conversation. That's chapters 25 to, to 31 of the book of Exodus. But what is underlined for us is the sensory overload of the setting. There's noise and lights and flame. Look at verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. That might sound familiar if you've been here over these past few weeks. It's kind of very similar to what we saw in Exodus chapter 19. 
There God came down on Mount Sinai because he had things to say to his people. And that pattern is repeated. God comes down again on Mount Sinai here in chapter 24 because God has more to say. He's not finished yet. And as I mentioned, what he says is basically recorded for us in Exodus chapters 25 to 31. We're not going to get into those chapters today. We're going to pause our series in Exodus uh, today. We'll come back to these chapters at another point, God willing. But in those chapters, God outlines how Israel is to build at the tabernacle, a mobile tent that is to accompany them on all their wanderings, where God is symbolically to be found and met with. And this, you see, is the climax of the whole book of Exodus. The book of Exodus ends with the construction of this tent, this tabernacle, and God's glory no longer on Mount Sinai, but coming to inhabit and physically, tangibly, viscerally be with the people. That is where the story of the covenant, the story of the book of Exodus, is heading. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Good question. If nothing else, friends, when God commits himself to his people, he doesn't stay at a distance. He gets up close and personal. In other words, God comes to dwell amongst his people. That is the supreme blessing above all blessings of the covenant. God is not distant, but he is close with his people, able to meet them, And enjoy fellowship and communion with them. That's why these verses, I think, are all about preparing us for the climax of the covenant. God dwelling amongst his people. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? After all, any wedding day is wonderful, but it's not the end. It's the beginning, isn't it? It's the marriage relationship that flows out of the wedding day that really matters. It's living together that lasts. Eve, my wife and I, I vividly remember that when we were first married, just that wonderful sense that we didn't have to separate at the end of the day, that we didn't have to go to separate homes, but we could be together because we were bound to each other in covenant. We see that similar dynamic here in the old covenant as it's confirmed. God committing to dwell amongst his people. And we also see this wonderful dynamic under the new covenant as well. Because you see, in far more profound ways, under the new covenant, God himself comes to us in Jesus. He walks in our world. He tabernacles himself, as John says in the opening of his gospel, coming among us. And if we're believers, God has come to us by his spirit. He is not distant. He lives within us. He has taken up residence in our hearts. And our hope is that one day God will literally visibly, unmissably return at the end of all things. Not staying distant, but coming close when Jesus returns. We will dwell with him forever in a renewed world made perfect. Listen to how John writes and describes that day, the end of the Bible, in the last few chapters. Revelation 21. Look, he says, At the end of all things, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Sounds familiar. It's the pattern we've been seeing. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That that is the climax of the covenant. 
God dwelling with us and we with him forever. And friends, that's meant to reorient us a little bit this afternoon. See, we have so much in the new covenant, wonderful and profound, rich spiritual blessings. We must never forget all we have in Christ. We saw that earlier. But friends, the best is always yet to come. We walk by faith, not yet by sight, but one day we will. One day we will see Jesus. We'll dwell with him forever. He will come. So we can be thankful for Jesus' gifts, but it is knowing him, having him, being with him, that is our ultimate hope. We say, don't we, often rather tritely, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. May that be true for us as we long for our heavenly bridegroom, confident that he will come soon. Our wedding day will come. Jesus will return. The covenant will reach its climax. So we can long for that day and prepare for that day and plan for that day. That is the climax of the covenant. Friends, we, we all love a good wedding. And in Exodus 24, God marries his people. He binds himself to them in gracious, loyal love. And they pledge to respond with covenant obedience. We've seen covenant confirmed. And we've looked forward to the climax of the covenant. So friends, as we finish, let's lift our heads and hearts. Let's look forward to the wedding day that is to come. Let's cling to Jesus in love. Let's be satisfied with him alone. Let's remain loyal to him, turning from others who would distract us from him. And maybe it's appropriate to express our longing for him in some of the last words of the entire Bible, just a few pages on from those verses from Revelation we read a moment ago. The spirit and the bride, that's us, say come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, and maybe as we finish, that's you today. Thirsty for Jesus. To know more of him now, although you love him, but also maybe to know him for the first time. What are you to do? Come, Jesus says. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And so we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to take a moment just to pray and respond to Jesus in our hearts before we stand and sing. But a moment of quiet to pray, to speak to Jesus about anything that you've been moved by today. Do business with him. Then I'll pray and we'll sing. Father God, thank you for what we've been able to consider this afternoon. Thank you for your grace towards your people. 
that you bound yourself to Israel of old in love and loyalty. And they expressed a heart to obey you. Thank you for the confirmation of the covenant with Israel uh, here in Exodus 24. Thank you, Father, for how we've thought about and been moved to see how that points forward to the new covenant. Thank you for that standing we have before you in and through the blood of the Lord Jesus. We too are clothed in red today because he is enough. He has done it all. Father, move our hearts to love Jesus, to say thank you to Jesus, to obey Jesus, not because we have to, but because we love him. And why would we do anything else? And Father, lift our eyes, we pray, to see where the story ends, where the climax of the covenant takes us, the great hope that is set before us of you returning to this world and dwelling amongst your people forever. That they will be wonderfully profound and such riches and blessings will be ours then. But thank you that at the heart of all those blessings is that promise that we will be with Jesus. That you will come up close in new and profound ways. Not yet experienced but deeply longed for. And so we say Amen. Come Lord.